Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On October 13th and 14th, Fidelity Investments Canada proudly hosted an in-person event for financial advisors, featuring several Fidelity portfolio managers and subject matter experts. On today's Fidelity Connects podcast, we're bringing you one of these sessions, featuring a discussion between Fidelity Global Natural Resources Portfolio Managers Joe Overdevest and Darren Lekekerker, joining moderator Pat Bolland. In addition to Global Natural Resources, you may know Joe from his private investment pools and as Director of Research, managing the Equity Research Analyst team. Darren manages Fidelity North American Equity Class and is Sub-Portfolio Manager on several funds, including Fidelity Canadian Balanced Fund. Joe and Darren unpack the current market environment and look at how their fund's positioning may have shifted of late. They'll also field questions from the live audience. Also, please note there were a few slides displayed to the live audience when this was initially recorded. Today's podcast was recorded on October 13th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Uh, okay, let's break it down a little bit. Uh, how do you guys actually split the job? Okay. And I think we actually have a chart that breaks it down. Great. There we go. Why don't I start out here and Joe can follow on. Mm-hmm. So Joe and I uh, both started in the uh, early 2000s in Boston. And we actually sat beside each other and I covered materials, mining and fertilizers and steel companies and Joe covered energy. And in 2007, we started running this fund. We've since moved on to each managed diversified funds, but this is the first fund that we ran at Fidelity, and we ran it together. And it was a really fun start. Uh, And so it's always been a special fund for us. And so I do the materials, given my background. So that's uh, chemicals, which largely includes a lot of agriculture-related stocks today, like fertilizers and crop chemicals and seeds, as well as metals and mining. Uh, and, so, and some smaller subcategories like packaging and construction materials that have more idiosyncratic theses. And Joe does energy as well as pipelines and, and midstream, and he can, he's going to get into that and talk about that in detail. A couple of points I'll make about the fund. I think it's different than other uh, Canadian resources funds in that our fund is more of a global focus as opposed to just a Canadian focus. We tend to focus on higher quality and larger companies than, you know, we try to... Uh, you know, avoid like very, very speculative, like juniors. And as a result, we've actually had very strong performance in down years. We've been able to do a good job of preserving our clients' capital in bad years because it is a very cyclical sector. Anything else I should be adding here, Joe? No, actually, before we leave you, because uh, that positioning, and you're the green part, if you will, of that overall, is that dynamic? How dynamic is that? How much is usually in chemicals versus the 20 Three percent or whatever it is currently. Yeah. So or the other area between energy and mining, it's usually about 50-50, but it does vary. It varies based on the market cap of each globally, uh, and also based on conversations with us. If we have a preference for energy versus mining, or mining versus energy, and then within my sleeves, I think I think it varies a lot 
Uh, and so right now, chemicals is a huge way. And why is that? It's because I'm super bullish on agriculture uh, and have been for a while now. Uh, and it's the fertilizer companies are big weights there. It's been helpful for the fund today and year to date, uh, as well as uh, other sort of agricultural companies versus mining. But we'll get, we'll get more into that as we go. Okay, good. And Joe, food products. <laughs> what, what is that doing, even doing there? <laughs> Food products is uh, darling, and uh, and so what happens is uh, this is the benefit of Fidelity. We're just constantly churning over rocks, as Darren was saying, back to our how how we get you know the top forty or fifty companies in Canada. You know, number one, we're stock pickers. We're trying to find the best supply of demand. We look at um, darling. They actually do food or waste, essentially um, grease, and make it into biodiesel. And number two, we leverage, you know, the 350 investment professionals around the world. They've looked around the world and they find that, you know, Darling's one of the few that actually has assets to do biodiesel. And then uh, lastly, we have a very big focus on risk. And the example would be with Darling, you know, it's great balance sheet, free cash flow, and a very unique asset. So be it energy, you know, I'm sure we'll bring this up, is we in the past have owned renewables. Uh, that was probably a few years ago when they did quite well. Right now, we see the most upside, though, not in renewables and more in the oil and gas space, and maybe potentially in the biodiesel as well. Uh, you, you had me worried at the beginning when you said, darling, I thought you were talking to me. <laughs> we're not at that level yet. <laughs> yeah, okay, great, thanks. Uh, okay, talk to me. I mean, everybody's focused on, you know, uh, price movement and so on, but let's talk about the business side of natural resources. How is that currently in the, in the world sphere, if you will? Sure. Well, I would say when we talk to the CEOs, uh, right now on the oil and gas side, the business side of things is pretty boring, right? Like, so you can talk to the Exxon, Chevron, to Canadian Natural Resources, and they're all saying the same thing. We're just doing dividends and buybacks. We're not really growing. Growth would be maybe 3%. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into this, but there's a lot of issues why you don't want to grow more, right? And uh, be it shareholders, be it governments. And so it's probably one of the most simplest times in, in the world right now of what's going on. Like, you know, the old days, you know, we've done this for a few years now. It'd be like, oh, we're exploring in Brazil, oil and gas, or we're doing offshore UK. Like, no one's really doing that, right? And if anything, just, you know, essentially, also one of the things I would say we're hearing for the first time, probably 15 plus years, we don't want to rely on the capital markets because we don't know if they're going to be there to help us. And so, you know, it's a little scary, but for them, because they're hearing like banks, especially in Europe, are saying like, well, for ESG reasons, we're no longer putting you in our syndicate. Some of our oil and gas companies that you know of, I won't name the names, if you look at their syndicate lists over the last few years, the European banks are leaving them. So they used to always rely on, you know, hey, this bank will be there to provide us credit. They're not there anymore. And if you actually look back, so your first question might be, is that good or bad? If you look back in history, you know, I think Andrew did a very good job of saying we should be, you know, students of history. When capital is being taken out of a sector, is actually usually very positive for returns, return on invested capital, and subsequently the stocks. When, when capital is going in, IRRs go down, stocks subsequently go down. Tech the last few years, you could get as much capital as possible. Right now, the resource space is starving of capital. So what happens is the IRRs are starting to go higher. Okay, but that's against the background. The commodity prices, and I'm speaking really generally, and Darren, you might want to address that. Commodity prices have been moving lower, have they not? Yeah, so I think the, dynamic, the key dynamic here is in the short term, you see cyclical pressures, right? So um, potential of a recession would bring lower demand and lower commodity prices. So we have seen oil prices move down, and we have seen copper prices move down. Uh, 
versus the medium term, which is more structural and very positive and has several tailwinds, including what Joe's talking a lot about, which is structurally short supply, right? Like historically, you always say in commodities, the cure for high prices is high prices, meaning that if you have like really high prices, capital comes in and you increase supply and it just kills the cycle. But we're not seeing that this time. And so why is that? And I think there's a number of reasons. I think one, you've got a decade of low and very volatile prices making CEOs very reluctant to invest in new supply. You've got ESG concerns preventing companies from obtaining capital and also expanding their operations. And also just investors too, investors not wanting companies to expand. So you've got tight, structurally short supply, which sets up really nicely. Um, even if we do have a recession, you, you can see that inventories and supplies really, really tight right now, measured in days of demand. But you could see the prices, the commodity prices and the stocks coming out of it really quickly if we do. Some of the other key points I would make too, we can get into later, is a nice tailwind from a potential energy transition. As we transition our economy from sort of high carbon intensity to low carbon intensity, it's really beneficial for demand on the material side, in particular for copper, aluminum, lithium's a smaller metal, but also for that in terms of more electric vehicles, renewable power like wind and solar, use so much more copper than more traditional sources of power like gas-fired or coal-fired facilities. And I think geopolitics, which, we, which I'm sure we'll get into as well, has also been beneficial, right? I think that com the conflict in Europe has been very restrictive of supply of certain commodities. Yeah, I, I do want to stay with that Ukrainian theme because I know that plays in that whole Nord Stream. Nord Stream, is that what it's called, the pipeline? Yeah. I mean, that's your space, right? Yeah, no, the, uh, the Ukraine uh, situation is, is awful for, for a number of reasons. Obviously, you know, you know, if you, if you hear from our, you know, the people on stage, we're not trying to make political bets, right? Like, we want to make investments, don't want to make political bets. They're very dangerous. Like, does the conflict end? Does it continue? Who knows? We'll do a lot of scenario analysis, but right now it's a, it's a very tough situation. I think the biggest thing about the Ukraine uh, crisis is actually what's going on in Europe, right? So we're very lucky to be who we are, and especially being in North America, where we are in resources. In Europe, they made a number of decisions a number of years ago to obviously engage with Russia in long-term contracts for natural gas. And that's really tough to come off. That's really tough to say, okay, like, well, we don't like that. This Ukraine situation is bringing up some bad news. Can we get other sources? You can't just bring on new pipelines and bring on new LNG overnight. It's, it's, it's those kind of political decisions have huge ramifications. And this is a lot we're seeing in resources. If you want to starve capital, you can't just turn these mines on or these oil fields on instantly. And so what we're doing in terms of investing, it's leading to investments you see in the top 10 like um, Chenier. They actually own infrastructure assets around the world. They're a pure play LNG provider. So as you can imagine, LNG used to be you know, 4 or $5. Today, if you sell into Europe, the gas prices are 40 and above, right? So I think what's really interesting, I'm sure we'll get into this too, is like, how does Europe solve this? And it's probably renewables, potentially uranium, potentially more LNG. The biggest thing, I think, with Europe and other, all these other countries, though, when you're having these issues, do they accept this is a long-term issue? Because if you hear them right now, they're saying, this is a short-term issue, so we'll solve it by, you know, essentially burning more coal, or we'll solve it by paying out for LNG where we can, but we're not going to make a long-term solution to this, as in maybe having a long-term deal with potentially Canada or the U.S. Okay, but against that background, oil prices, I think, have kind of rolled over. They're certainly not 
near where they were earlier, yep. natural gas uh, less so. I mean, what's the dynamic there? I think the biggest thing with resources that Darren was saying is the last few months is really demand. It's not really a supply issue. It's not even really a Ukraine situation getting better or worse. It's really China COVID. There's a lot of shutdowns going on. You see, of course, interest rates moving quite you know, aggressively. That has an impact on global demand. You're seeing it. You know, We saw a lot of PMI data and a lot of different stats that was put up this morning. You know, On the margin, global growth is slowing. So I think what's going on across all commodities is that's a reflection. The commodities are... You know, always a reflection of global demand is a big swing factor. Okay, but are you investing? In, you're investing in stocks. You're not investing in the commodities. Yep. I mean, how is that world? How do they compare? How do you compare investing in wheat or an agricultural company or oil in an oil and gas company? Usually, the biggest short-term factor for price performance of the stocks is the commodities. And so, if the commodities goes up, the stocks will go up. You know, I, I'm like, look, I'm, a, I'm an equity analyst. I prefer to invest in companies and equities than commodities. I think that, you know, we like meet with all the companies. We try to find the companies that we like the best, right? Like best resources, best management team that's going to actually allocate capital in a smart, efficient way. Um, and ideally today at these, at these really low uh, share prices, we think for resource companies, give it back to us as investors is very uh, accretive. So I, I prefer to invest in the equities. And, I, and you know, look, like, I guess you could also say, hey, has this been an effective inflation hedge? And you can look and you can say, hey, the, some of the commodities are up here today, some are down, but overall, the, you know, the fund is, the fund is, I think it's up like mid-teens or high-teens as, um, as of today. So it, it has, you know, the stocks and have followed the commodities and benefited. Over time. Same in oil and gas? I would just say, you know, maybe high level, if we all look at it, supply and demand, the probably tightest supply and demand would probably be Agriculture, oil, almost, you know, near the top. We were actually debating this recently. Oil and gas actually are very similar. And then you go lower, it's kind of like coke and coal. And then copper is kind of lower down and gold kind of thing. But I think with the, uh, when we look at investing in general, I think even when we look at our diversified funds, you know, is this a good business? Sometimes you have these businesses. And, you know, we, I looked at this recently, carbon sequestration. So carbon sequestration is taking carbon, sticking in the ground, essentially. So we, we have some investments we could own if we want to. And some of these companies, though, there's no economic rent, right? Like, so essentially, if the government opens up carbon sequestration in the backyard out here, you could be sitting carbon right beside the golf course and put in the ground. So you owning land, it's not really a differentiator. You can't really get a lot of economic rent from that. It's not a great business. Mm. Whereas if you own strategic assets in the oil sands that can last 50 years with no declines, that's a pretty strategic asset. Number two we look at is, like, our management trustworthy. We're a steward of your capital, right? So you hand us money. You know, that's a big deal. Just because the commodity's great, the company's great, if we don't trust the management, we're not there, right? Because management can screw up a lot of things, and there is some people in this world, sadly, who are crooks. And then lastly is, is valuation attractive, right? Sometimes you get really excited, but, and sometimes a great company is not a great stock, but we look at oil and gas, probably 10 or 20% free cash flow yields right now. So there's a lot of good, decent companies still for valuation perspective. Uh, can you share, I guess this would be you, Darren, uh, share your thoughts on uranium? Actually, uranium falls oh, do you under, do you want under uh, so energy. So energy, right. My fault. Well, my, my <laughs> it also comes answer. out of the ground, yeah. so I get confused. <laughs> Pat, Pat, you mine it, yeah. yeah. Pat and I have done this well. Uranium is an energy source, so it's actually under my coverage. And so uranium is interesting because, again, Pat and I and Darren have been on the stage for a while, in the last, especially the last few months. Uranium's changed over the last few months where we were doing this Calgary or Boston. Yeah. And what's changed, you're actually seeing some governments around the world, and this is what we talked about before, there's always a, a tipping point. 
right? There's always a point where it's like, okay, there's so much pain, we're willing to do something. So recently, uranium was not something most countries were willing to do. They were shutting down nuclear power plants. The biggest issue is the waste. The waste really doesn't go away. The actual waste is very small, but it doesn't go away. So if you actually look even in North America, even here in, you know, in Canada, even our environmental groups didn't really back uranium. They backed wind and solar, but not uranium. And so now you're seeing Europe potentially open new nuclear power plants, at least research it. Okay, that's a big change because they were shutting down. And the IRA or Inflation Protection uh, Act, is, uh, the, um, the, uh, that act, of course, there too, they are looking to actually give uh, tax benefits to uranium for the first time. So that's definitely a change. So I would say the demand's outlook has definitely changed over the last, say, 10 years for that sector. How about the last six months? Because, uh, you know, it used to be that, uh, you know, uh, people getting out of nuclear warheads was a source of uranium for a long period of time. Obviously, that's not the case given the geopolitical stress that we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine. Is that playing into it? Or does, I've never actually seen anybody talk about that. Yeah, so what Pat's saying is in the old days, nuclear itself, like if you looked at world supply, most of it comes from risky areas, to say the least, even pre the uh, conflict. It was Russia and Kazakhstan. And a lot of it was actually, you're right, nuclear warheads that had yeah. this lying around. So you actually, when we did supply and demand analysis, we had to really risk it. Because you really, like, who's counting how much uranium is in Russia or Kazakhstan? It's really tough to get a, a good outlook. What's changed, of course, now is a lot of countries are saying, should we actually be connected to these people longer term? And should we look at Saskatchewan as a potential example that can supply uranium? We're definitely seeing that. Now, again, it's tough is that they want to get off it, but they don't want to get off it and have to pay the price. Because getting off these contracts a long period of time and finding uranium around the world is not, the, not very easy. These are usually long, long-term contracts, 10, 20 years. Good question. Nice discussion on uranium, too. I want to get back to where we were there on, more on uh, kind of like portfolio construction, if you don't mind, because uh, traditionally we think of Canada as, you know, uh, carriers of water and hewers of wood and all that, whatever that expression is, but natural resources. Uh, are you diversified? I know you can go global, but are you really global or, or do you have a lot of Canadian in your funds? Well, I, I would say both. I think we are really global. I think we do have a lot of Canadian companies in the fund. We think that Canadian companies are some of the best resource companies in the world on both the materials and the energy side. So in particular, I'm bullish on fertilizers. Like, like where, do you, where do you find the best fertilizer companies in the world in, in Canada? And so I own the ones listed in Canada and listed in U.S. Both of them actually have their resource in Canada. Um, and just because I think it's like the, the largest and, and best source of uh, potash in the world. Right. Yeah. What's going on with potash? Because that's Russian as well. Potash, right. the supply. And as I understand it, and I'm a farmer occasionally, uh, you can delay installing potash into your fields. You can take three years off if you will. You don't have to do it every year. You can take a potash holiday. That's, yeah. that's right. Uh, and so I, think, so I think what happened is that for potash, the setup was really bullish before the war started. And then when the war started, so before the war started, 20% of the world supply comes from Belarus. There was already sanctions on Belarus that did not relate to the war. And then the war happened, and Russia is, has not been sanctioned for potash, but they produce another 20% of the world's potash supply. So it's 40%. And they're responsible for all of the growth uh, in potash. And so it's unclear whether they'll be able to expand their supply if they want to. Will they be able to get access to materials, labor, a talent to do so? So the so the demand supply and the demand side is really bullish because 
corn, so grain prices are really high. Corn prices is like $7 a bushel. It's super high. A normalized price would be $4. Why is it high? It's because we have really, really low inventories or stocks to use mm -hmm. in terms of agriculture. And it'll take at least two or three years of normalized yields, like normal weather and good growth, to have lower prices. So we have high prices for a while. Demand's really strong. And then supply's constrained. So the price is really high. I think farmers are saying, hey, the price is high. I can, some of them are saying that I can wait a year on my potash. They can't wait on their nitrogen, which is another thing we can talk about. Mm. But I think the setup looks really good. The price is still really high. It should be higher as a result of that next year because demand would be better. And meanwhile, on the nitrogen side of fertilizers, a lot of that has to go with what Joe's saying. Nitrogen is actually made from natural gas. And because the European natural gas prices are so high, it's uneconomic to produce nitrogen fertilizers in Europe. Europe normally exports their supply uh, in part to North America. They're not able to do so anymore because it's uneconomic. They've had uh, major plant shutdowns, and so we've had really high nitrogen fertilizer prices. So as a result, the prices are high. They should stay high for uh, a, at least like a couple of years here. And meanwhile, the companies are just minting cash flow. And mostly what they're doing is what Joe said earlier in terms of resource companies. Companies are being really good stewards, generally, not all of them, of shareholders' cash flow, and they're giving it back to shareholders in the term in the form of higher dividends and greater share buyback. So if there's a strong cash flow, are we starting to see multiple expansion at all? What's the valuation? So the, the, the multiples are really low. And so why is that? I think people are afraid of a recession. People are afraid of peak commodity prices. Um, but I think as a result, you get to buy these companies pretty cheaply, and you get to keep that cash flow. I know you want to talk about uh, marginal cost, but this question kind of fits in a little bit to that. Mm -hmm. This is the earlier question that I put off. You talked about Darling. Who knew we'd talk about this little company called Darling? Uh, and carbon oh. sequestration. To a, what extent do you consider ESG research in the portfolio? I think um, ESG research is something that's developed, obviously, in the industry. We all know that. It's, it's being developed uh, more and more every day at Fidelity. It's part of our investment process, but to every um, portfolio, we also have to be honest with what that client wants for that portfolio. For us, I would say obviously ESG is, is a part of the process, but probably more so the S and G, because if you want me to solve for the E, we would own no oil and gas, right? Or, you know, subsequently less. My clients, I don't think would like that in that portfolio. So we have to be honest with what that client particularly wants. But the S and G, I think we just, you know, it's been labeled as ESG, but we've been doing that for years in particular. And I think it's very important, as I mentioned before, you can have a great company run by, you know, some poor managers. And um, the society part of things too, I also think is not just always a negative, is like we were just talking with uranium. If also in society is starting to change and being more accepting of things, that ESG also can be a positive for them. Uh, be it Darling, be it biodiesel, obviously copper is in definitely a big demand. If you want to do anything with batteries, any stats you'll see if you Google how much copper is using a battery or Tesla, it's a lot, right? So the S part of it can be a very big positive as well. And I think, you know, you know, uh, Pat was alluding to marginal costs. This is another thing that ties into all this. The old days, you would say marginal costs. Why is marginal costs important? Is that it sets when new supply comes on. So for oil, maybe that's $50. So the Permian in Texas, if they see $50, they would add supply. That's when the IRR, return on capital, would be attractive, Okay. Why are we not seeing more supply? Part of it is this. You're seeing ESG as an issue. So they're saying, well, if I all of a sudden see this ESG going on, I'm getting pushed to not add supply for my debt markets, for my capital markets, 
So maybe 50 becomes 60. Capital costs are going up. Interest rates are going up. Cost of equity is going up. So maybe that's another 10 bucks on that. And lastly, governments. There's a government take. Carbon tax is a big deal across all major G7 countries or even pipelines. That's a tax, right? If you, want, if you don't comfortable that there's actually going to be pipelines, you're going to pay a lower price on your commodity. All of a sudden, 50 goes to 60, 70, 80, and it, it kind of makes sense. You, the model will say they should be adding supply. Why are they not? In practice, there's a lot of costs that may be more qualitative, but they do add up. Do they ever? I, I want to go back to your ESG because you said you're focusing on S and G and not the E. Um, because nobody would buy into that kind of a fund if it if because it's oil and gas, right? But what do you do as far as an oil and gas company? A lot of these companies, like I'm thinking BP and Shell, have been innovators in the E side of the equation. That's got to play for something, doesn't it? Oh, it totally plays for something, and I think that's where it's like it's not like we ignore E by any means, but it would say we would lean less on it. So maybe the better example would be obviously BP. We mentioned and Total and World Dutch are trying to transition. Even Exxon's trying to transition. Exxon has three environmentalists on their board of directors. Like that's a pretty profound statement if you if you ever look back at the history of Exxon. But I think what's more profound, maybe for everyone here as Canadians, the oil and gas space, we talk about carbon sequestration, essentially taking carbon, injecting it into the ground, so it doesn't, you know, obviously make the environment worse. The oil sands is a perfect example where you want to do that. If you go there, there's a lot of big facilities all close together, and they're doing it right now. They're working with the government provincially and federally working what you call pathways agreement. It's not officially done yet. We're working through the, the, the tax benefits before they go full tilt. But they probably will be the leaders, potentially, if the governments do this right, of carbon sequestration around the world. Hmm. And going back to the marginal cost, too, uh, NIMBY, LNG, I'd love to talk about your opinions on the future of LNG globally, never mind in Canada, because nobody wants it in their backyard. <laughs> LNG is one of those examples where... Even, again, Pat and I were, you know, I know what he's alluding to, here in Canada, or well, I'll say we're here in Canada, even though we're not here in Canada, as Canadians, we should be saying right now, potentially, it's, you know, hey, let's go to Europe and let's try to find a solution for them. But even, not just the Europeans, but us, if you watch carefully, they're not, we're not really offering LNG as a solution, right? Because, again, we're even our word says our governments are saying this is a short-term issue. We'd rather provide them with any kind of alternative energy we don't want to provide them with more carbon-emitting energy, right? So, but I, as I would say with uranium, everything has a breaking point, right? As a citizen right now in UK or in Europe in particular, they're near that breaking point where they're actually saying, I might lose my job because the factory I work at is shut down in the wintertime. That's a breaking point, right? When I start losing my job or my kids, you know, I have to cut back on their spending because my heating bill. So there, what I think you'll see is, if we hit that breaking point, they're going to have to make some tough decisions and probably reverse what they did with Nord Stream and go more into LNG for North America, which we're very nicely set up for if our government allows it. I want to come back to you, Darren, uh, and talk about other commodities because we've only barely touched on copper or even lithium or some of the other ones that are in the spectrum. Which ones are attracting your attention right now? Yeah, so right now, as I mentioned, I'm really focused on agriculture, particularly fertilizers, as well as companies that make seeds and crop chemicals. I think... I'm also focused on copper, and I think copper right now is a smaller part of the portfolio than it has been historically, because I think that I'm a little bit nervous about near-term demand in China, but I think in the medium term, I'm really bullish on copper, in particular because a lot of the ESG points made by uh, Joe here, just the huge wall of demand coming to support this transition towards a low-carbon economy, it will require a lot of copper, and we're not seeing the supply uh, come on. We're seeing some supply in the next couple of years, but beyond that, 
there's no major mines coming on. And you know, why is that? It's because low prices, ESG concerns, um, although it's also required to support the environment, as well as uh, a difficult politics, right? Like 25% of the world's copper is produced in Chile. They've uh, elected a government that's uh, trying to take a higher share of profits from the industry. And so companies are more reluctant to invest. It's uncertain tax and royalty regime. So I think copper is something that I would look to transition to, but it's a small part, smaller part of the portfolio today. Also aluminum, I would say similar things. Aluminum is a derivative of energy. And because you have high European energy prices, we're seeing smelters shut down. So the supply side looks uh, bullish and it gets some demand in the future. I would also like that. And then lithium. I think lithium prices are really high right now. There is supply coming, but I think the supply outside of China is still early. It's taking a long time to, uh, to come on. I do a lot of these conferences, and a lot of time we talk about infrastructure. And uh, infrastructure requires a couple of things. It requires concrete, and it requires steel. And yet, that didn't come up in our discussion. I'd love right. your opinions. Yeah, so I, I, should, I should mention aggregates which is uh, crushed rock and gravel, which is required to make concrete. I think it's actually a great business. It doesn't get talked about a lot, but essentially if you own like an aggregates quarry, you own a monopoly. And the reason is, is because it's, not un, it's only economic to shift in a certain radius. So beyond that, you can't shift. So it's actually one of the few uh, commodity type companies that in recessions, the price doesn't go down, um, which, is, which is a fantastic business. They have very, very high margins. The volumes will come down. The volumes are cyclical, but super high margins, prices that only go up, um, it's a great business. Are they investable? And, and as you know from your talks on the infrastructure side, you've got the big infrastructure bill coming in the U.S. So there's huge, right. huge spring-loaded demand. Yes, they're investable. Yes, we own them. Hmm. What about um, something you and I talked about recently, gold? What are your thoughts on gold? Uh, I'm not that positive on gold. And the reason is, is I just think that um, with in, interest rates going up, uh, you've got a high U.S. dollar, and you've got higher, higher and rising real interest rates. And think of real interest rates as the cost of owning gold. So the higher cost of ownership and its price in U.S. dollars, which is going up. So I'm not that positive on gold. And as a result, we're very light on our gold ownership. So uh, traditionally, demand has been driven by India and China for cultural reasons. What is it like industrially? Yeah, so I think I think gold is more like a currency, and you shouldn't think of it as an as another commodity like oil or copper, where you would think about the demand and supply. Also, because it's not consumed, right? All the gold that was ever mined is still around in circulation. So think of gold as a currency. Um, that's that's how I do, and so it's not particularly attractive at the moment. It, it, it may be in the future. I want to talk about other commodities too with you, Joe, because uh, it wasn't that long ago that everybody who wanted to play in the oil and gas sector played in pipelines mm -hmm. because they didn't want to get involved in the underlying commodity. Where are they now? And are, do you do that? Uh, the pipeline, so we, we, in this fund, we don't own any pipeline companies. We find actually better attractive valuations in the oil and gas exploration production, or what they call integrated names. So it's like Occidental Petroleum, Tourmaline Oil, Canadian Natural Resources. Um, we just find those more attractive valuation. Number two is long-term growth. And so this is a very unique thing. And so normally in the past, you probably have, would have seen me own services. So like maybe it's Schumberger or Precision Drilling here in Canada. So we don't own pipelines. We don't own services. It's actually connected. Because every cycle is sometimes a little different, right? And what this cycle is all about, is what we're both saying, is a lack of supply. Mm. No one's really adding supply. So if no one's adding supply, you don't really want to buy services. Because services are essentially, when you go to drill, drill a will, Schumberger helps you drill it, right? And if it's not that tight, well, there's not a lot of return on capital, 
for that Chamberger service. So that's number one. Number two is pipelines. Well, we're not really growing supply. So what you really like so pipelines is you'll, you get like a 5% dividend. They're growing 5 or 6% on, on just demand with new pipelines. Well, there's not really new pipelines. And in, one, because the producers aren't really growing that fast. And uh, the other thing is the government. So if you're crossing like any kind of state line or like um, government line with the U.S. Canada border, there is huge issues, right? So like Enbridge is dealing with like Michigan and uh, Minnesota. I mean, they, in some cases, Michigan wants to shut down a current pipeline. Like that's just like 10 years ago, we never even thought that was legally allowed. But like, so they built all this infrastructure and they're saying, we just want to shut this thing down. And of course, even in our backyard, just building pipelines and crossing coastal gas link. There was an article and report on business recently. It's really difficult. So you're, you're, you're following, you know, indigenous groups. Some of them want it. Some of them don't want it. And governments, some want it. Some don't want it. So the pipeline space has a lot of issues that maybe the basic oil and gas of doing dividends and buybacks don't have today. Hmm. Uh, Darren, we're just down to the last few minutes here. Give us an update on, you had two other funds as well, North American Equity and the Canadian Equity Sleeve of the Canadian Balance. Where, where do we stand on those? Hey, uh, thanks, Pat. So uh, in terms of the positioning of those funds, I would say uh, with my style, I invest in high-quality companies. It's mostly invested in high-quality companies. So some of the biggest positions are in software companies, uh, where, I, where I think there's like some fantastic valuations right now. Uh, railways, which I think are monopoly type of businesses, which have done well year to date. Waste management companies, information services companies, for example, uh, and and then also resources. What we're talking about here today as a, as a beneficiary of inflation. Uh, in terms of Fidelity North American Equity Fund, it's uh, for those of you that don't know the fund, it's 70% in uh, U.S. large cap stocks and 30% in Canadian uh, large cap stocks. I often get asked, like, what do I like, Canada or the U.S.? And my answer to that is, I just think North America is, is such a great place to invest. I think it will remain so for the next few years. We probably won't get a lot of time to get into that. But look, I mean, it's got food uh, and energy and commodity independence. It has friendly neighbors. There's low risk of a war here. Uh, and it's got some of the leading centers of university in terms of innovation uh, and also Silicon Valley. Uh, and also look at the, the resources we have in Canada. So I really like investing in North America. Uh, and listen, I always like good stories. And I know Fidelity is known for their fundamental and uh, research. And you meet companies day in and day out. Give me the best story you've heard over the last month. I actually think it's these resource companies sound, sound the best, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I think the fertilizer companies sound like fantastic. We've kind of talked about it up here. I mean, it's high prices. You've got your biggest competitors constrained to add supply. Um, they don't have that many projects to spend the money on, so you're getting it back as a shareholder. Uh, I also, you know, I mentioned the railways in terms of Fidelity North American Equity Fund and Canadian Balance. I think the Canadian railways sound fantastic. They each have idiosyncratic stories. I think railways are monopolies. I think the Canadian railways sound better than the U.S. railways. Um, structurally, they're better. They've got uh, less competition from truck due to the longer length of haul. Um, they've had better growth over the years. Uh, and they're getting really strong pricing. And, you know, Canadian Pacific, which is, you know, and CNR, Canadian Pacific is trying to do a merger. If so, there'll be, like, massive, massive cost savings and, and, and revenue synergies. Yeah, I, I would just add, like, uh, sometimes the bad is actually good. So, like, I talked with LNG or Chenier or Tourmaline Oil. Is uh, Tourmaline has uh, gas that goes to, obviously, the, the coast for LNG as well. And, and Chenier has big facilities is just hearing about all the issues that, like, they have deals, but adding more deals or adding more supply 
the governments really don't want more LNG on the coast. And so if you already own the assets, that's actually what you want to hear. It's kind of like, I have a real estate asset and they won't let me build anything around it or my competitors. That's what you like to have as a moat. So the governments are actually protecting some of these oil and gas assets we own to have higher return on capital. So sometimes a good thing is, is a bad thing is good for your company. I'm just glad you didn't talk about darling. Thanks very much, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.